Now, something I, I learned as I was studying this, uh, maybe maybe you already knew this, did, but did you know that uh, the the early ministry we're going to look at here at the end of Matthew 4 uh, did not take place exactly after the temptation in the wilderness? How many of you already knew that? <laughs> Just curious. Uh, and, and the reason I didn't, I wasn't, for whatever reason, I wasn't aware of that is because None of the synoptic Gospels, and by the way, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them give you any impression that there's a a rather large gap between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and his early ministry in Galilee. And the only reason we know this is because we we actually learn it from the Apostle John. If you read uh, coming toward the end of John chapter 1 and then going into all the way through John chapter 4, we actually see... In those chapters, what happens in Jesus' life after he was baptized and after his temptation in the wilderness? There's about a year actually elapsed between Jesus' wilderness temptations and the events that are actually recorded here in Matthew chapter 4. Now, if you're wondering what happened during that time, go back this afternoon. Let me encourage you to read John 1 through 4. You'll find what happened during that, that first year of Jesus' early ministry. And you're wondering, well, why doesn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John mention it? Well, I, I can probably tell you why Matthew doesn't mention that year. And that's probably because it doesn't relate directly to Jesus' kingship. Because that's the whole point that Matthew's trying to get across, that Jesus is king. And, and, and has nothing to do with proving his point. Therefore, he apparently left it out for that reason. But let me give you some highlights of that, that first year after Jesus' baptism Coming from John, I'll put them up on the screen here for you. We see, first of all, Jesus' first miracle, uh, the turning of the, the water into wine there at the wedding of Cana. That's John 2. And then there was the cleansing of the temple. Uh, then we see uh, the testimony to Nicodemus in chapter 3. who was uh, Remember, he was a ruler of the Jews. And then there was the final public testimony of John the Baptist. And then we see Jesus purposely walks through Samaria to meet the woman at the well. He was breaking down all kinds of barriers in doing that, but uh, that's in John chapter 4. And that was all in the process of him going to Galilee. Of course, he had to walk through Samaria to get to Galilee. Uh, Otherwise, he would have done what most of them did at that time. He would have crossed over the Jordan River and walked around the east side of it just to avoid Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't do that. He had a divine appointment to keep with the woman at the well. And now we come to Matthew 4, verse 12. And Matthew's picking up the story that the, the first of that first year where the Apostle John actually left off in John chapter 4. And it gives us several features here of Jesus' early ministry that shows God's perfect work through His Son. I want, it's, I want us to think about these, these features of Jesus' early ministry uh, we don't know a whole lot, but, but at least we do know this much. So I want to look at them one by one as we go through the, the end here of Matthew chapter 4. First of all, we see here that Jesus' early ministry was at the right time. It was at the right time. Look at uh, Matthew 4, verse 12. There, there's an interesting phrase that Matthew uses several times in his gospel. And every time he uses this, it's, we're, we're ready for something big to come. And look at the next, the, the, first, the first words in, in Matthew 4.12. Now when Jesus heard 
that John, that's John the Baptist, by the way, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Jesus' official ministry began when the herald of the king, who of course was John the Baptist, went to jail. You can read about that later on. Uh, We're not going to read about that today. But why is this significant? Why is this even mentioned here? Well, one reason it has to be is because the Son of God always worked on the Father's divine timetable. How often do we see Jesus mentioning that he was about his Father's work? Several times, right? That was his main concern. He knew the Father's will, and nothing was going to stop him from doing that. The Father's timetable came into play here. John had been taken into custody by Herod, however you say his name, Antipas. He was thrown into the dungeon of the palace. Why? Well, you you can read about that in the book of John. We, We see that John had been rebuking Herod for his great wickedness, and one of those things included that he had actually taken his half-brother's wife for himself. Of course, that's wickedness, and John rebuked him for that, pointed out his sin, and whenever you point out uh, someone who is in high authority, you point out their sin, you, you can pretty much expect huge fireworks to be going off, right? That's, you're, that's not one of the 101 ways to win and in, in influence friends. So this rebuke ends up costing John the Baptist his freedom and eventually his life. And it's, by the way, it's always dangerous to confront evil. Just expect it. Jesus told us to expect it. And so John's condemnation of moral wickedness in high places led to his execution. But God is showing us here that John the Baptist's death was a part of his plan. God knew this was going to happen. And it was in his timetable. And the end of the herald's work here signaled the beginning of the king's work. And by the king, of course, you know I'm referring to Jesus Christ. Because that's the whole point of Matthew, showing that Jesus Christ is king. So my friends, do you see how the leaders of this world, including guys like Herod, they they think that their actions are, are just a part of their freedom of choice. And they're accomplishing their own goals and their own purposes, when in reality, the leaders and everybody in this world, as they go about making their decisions, they're accomplishing God's purposes. Do you see that here? This was God's purpose for John the Baptist to die, for the herald's ministry to end, so that Jesus Christ's ministry would start. So their decisions are only triggering, really, events that God scheduled even before the creation of the earth. And this is one of those. So Jesus' early ministry was at the right time. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Number two, the second feature of Jesus' early ministry is that Jesus' early ministry was in the right place. Not only was it at the right time, it was in the right place. Look at verse 12 again. Where did he depart to? The end of verse 12 says, he departed to Galilee. Verse 13 goes on. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, 
which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... Now, verses 15 and 16 are a quote from Isaiah. And here's what it says in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So Jesus' early ministry, of course, was in the right place. Jesus, of course, would have known uh, this passage from, coming from Isaiah. And we can see here, of course, it, there's, there's many fulfilled prophecies in the book of Matthew. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. And we see again that nothing is accidental, nothing is circumstantial in the Lord's work. Everything has a purpose. Jesus didn't go, by the way, from Judea through Samaria and in, in, in into Galilee because he was afraid. He didn't go because he was forced to do by King Herod. He wasn't forced to do this by the Jewish leaders or because, or because he had nowhere else to go. I mean, those are some of the silly explanations of why Jesus went there. Jesus wasn't afraid of these people. And he certainly wouldn't have gone there to get away from Herod, because Herod ruled Galilee just like he did in Judea. That's a silly explanation. So why did he leave? Well, he left because his work wasn't finished yet for that period of his ministry. He wasn't ready to confront the religious leaders in Jerusalem yet. His time hadn't come. He went to Samaria in order to bring light to the Samaritans, and then he withdrew and, and went farther north into Galilee because that was the next place where God's plan scheduled him to minister. So it was by divine determination that Jesus went to the right place at the right time. I've given you a map there. You can see the region of Galilee was approximately 100 kilometers by about 50 kilometers wide. It was uh, mainly to the west of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, it wasn't actually a sea. You can see it was technically a lake. had two different other names, by the way, you can see in your Bibles. And that's where Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry. The region of Galilee originally had been given by the Lord to the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Remember when Joshua and the Israelites came into the Promised Land? And the land was divided up. You can, by the way, you can read about that in Joshua chapter 19. Don't do it now, please, though. But um, contrary to God's command, did those tribes actually conquer all of the Canaanites? No, sadly they did not. God told them, I want you to utterly destroy all these wicked Canaanites. They didn't do it. Didn't expel them. They lived amongst them. And therefore, from the very beginning, these unfaithful Hebrews suffered the, this problem of mixed marriages, and as a result of the mixed marriages, inevitably, paganism, uh, the, the pagan influence was going to affect them, and they ended up worshiping false gods, which is one reason the northern tribes were the, the first ones to be attacked and defeated. And we see, in fact, in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrian Empire invaded and they took away a large part of the, the northern tribes, and they took them captive. And as the Assyrians would often do when they would conquer an area to, to, sub, to suppress any uprising that might happen, they would bring in Assyrians and, and other nationalities 
and races to, to intermarry with that region. And that's exactly what happened. So the Jews were no longer purebred Jews. They had actually intermarried over the years. So there was no such thing as a, a pure Jew anymore. And so until it, 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 this region was really under Gentile domain, if you will, until it was temporarily liberated by a man named uh, Judas Maccabees in 164 B.C. The region of Galilee was largely under the foreign control and was even largely populated by non-Jews. And, and we, which is why even Isaiah and Matthew mentions that it was Galilee of the Gentiles. There were a lot of Gentiles living in that region. So where is Galilee? Well, of course you can see there, get an idea where it was. But may I remind you that this was a Roman region at the time of Jesus. Primarily, again, to the west of the Sea of Galilee, which had other names like the uh, Tiberius and Gennesaret. A region of about 100 kilometers long by about uh, 50 kilometers wide. And the area around that lake was uh, heavily populated. Some have even given estimates up to about 2 million people lived in the region of Galilee. It had long been the bread basket of uh, central Palestine. The soil was extremely fertile, and the lake furnished great quantities of fish, which is why when Jesus, we're about to read in a moment, when Jesus comes along, he sees four of his disciples. What are they doing? They're fishing. <laughs> it, was a, it was a region with a lot of fish. And in fact, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, by the way, which at one time was a governor of Galilee, here's what he had to say, quote, It is throughout rich in soil and pasture, producing every variety of tree and inviting by its productivity even those who have the least inclination for agriculture. It is everywhere tilled and everywhere productive, end quote. And here, here's a man who lived not that long after the, the time of Christ and was actually a governor of the region of Galilee. That's what he had to say about the region. Well, what were the people like? The Jews who lived in Galilee, of course, not all of them were Jews. Remember, many of them were Gentiles. But the, the Jews who actually lived there were uh, mostly considered less sophisticated and traditional than the ones who lived down in the southern region of Judea. Especially the people who lived in Jerusalem. The people around the temple there were considered... Uh, you know, the, the more sophisticated of the Jews. Jo and again, the historian Josephus observed that the Galileans were fond of innovations and by nature disposed to change and they delighted in seditions, end quote. So some have, have conjured up this, this idea, well, may, maybe this is one of the reasons why Jesus was prophesied to go to the region of Galilee. Of course, Jesus probably knew this. And so Jesus chose his disciples possibly from the region of Galilee because he knew they would be less bound to Jewish tradition. Maybe they would be more open to the gospel than the people in Judea. Why was the region of Galilee the right place? Well, the fact that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee rather than in some place like Jerusalem emphasizes the fact that Jesus' gospel, the true gospel, 
the gospel of salvation was for the whole world. It wasn't just for purebred Jews. Okay, do you understand this, my friends? Because I think we're all Gentiles here today, aren't we? The gospel is for everyone. Not everybody's going to be saved, but, but it's for every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Not just for a Jew or a Hebrew. That's significant. We, we see that emphasized throughout the gospel. So the third feature of Jesus' early ministry is that it had the right message. Jesus' early ministry had the right message. Look at verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Now I want you to, to, to take note here that Jesus preached. Preaching, you say, well, what is exactly preaching? Okay, people have sometimes have misconceptions on preaching, so understand that preaching was a central part of Jesus' ministry. And by the way, it remains a central part of Jesus' church. That's why it's important that we, we gather together to listen to the preached word. The word preach simply means to proclaim or to publish that is to publicly make a message known. That's what the word literally means. Well, how did he preach? Well, this is also significant, and we should sit up and take notice of this, because this is what should be happening in our churches. How did he preach? Well, if you're a postmodernist, take note of this. <laughs> okay? Jesus preached his message with certainty. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't sit around in a circle. And, uh, you know, sit on a stool and have everybody sit on couches around him and, and say, well, what do you think about this? That's not how Jesus preached. He preached with certainty. He didn't come to dispute. He didn't come to argue. He didn't come with, you know, ten reasons why I believe this. He proclaimed the truth. And this is important for us today, particularly in our postmodern culture we live in, where Everything is relative, and your opinion is just as valid as everybody else's opinion. Jesus believed that preaching is the proclamation of certainties, of absolutes. Jesus knew there was truth, because the Bible says Jesus is the truth. And he said that his word is truth. When Jesus preached, he wasn't suggesting, well, you know, here's another option for you. No, that's, he never preached like that. And anybody who preaches today should remember as they preach God's word, they are preaching absolutes and certainties. And as you, as you listen to the word preach, you need to remember that the preacher is a, is a messenger of God. He ought to be preaching certainties and absolutes. And you should take them that way. So what was Jesus' message? Well, in one word, it was to repent. And by the way, that was the same message that John the Baptist was preaching, right? Repent. Why? Why, why was he preaching this? Well, the darkness in which the people lived was the darkness of sin and evil. They needed to repent. And so Jesus was, was essentially saying that this great darkness that had come upon them was, was, had come upon them because of what was in them. Our greatest problem is what's inside us, by the way. 
Not your externals, not the circumstances, not the economy, not the government, not earthquakes and volcanoes and all these other things and oil washing on our shores. Those, those are far less in importance than what's going on inside you. We have to be willing to turn from that darkness to the light. Now, what does it mean to repent? It means to turn from sin. Turn from sin is what it means to repent, to change one's orientation, to turn around and then to seek a new way, to seek the way. The word repent literally means a change of perception, a change in the way we see something, particularly in regards to our sin. Therefore, to repent is to change the way a person looks at sin and the way he or she looks at righteousness. And of course, it's going to involve a change of opinion. Because before we're saved, we have the wrong view of sin. We have the wrong view of ourselves. And so it's going to involve a change of opinion, a change of direction. And of course, that's going to lead to a change of life as well. It's going to change our behavior. It's going to change our lifestyle. By the way, that was and has always been and always will continue to be the first requirement of salvation. Repentance is essential in regards to salvation. Jesus' message hasn't changed. Jesus' message is not become a Christian and and I've got a great plan for your life. You'll become healthy, wealthy, and wise, and I'll prosper you. No, that's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message starts with repentance. We need to change how we see ourselves before a holy God. We're not holy. So Jesus' early ministry had the right message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Number four, Jesus' early ministry called the right men. He called the right men. Look at verse 18. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to call his disciples. He went after humble men. Look at verse 18. Jesus walked by the sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee his father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father, and followed him. Let me just comment about these men whom Jesus chose here, first of all. By the way, uh, most Bible scholars believe that, unlike what some people think, this was not Jesus' first encounter with these men. You can read in the Bible that Andrew knew Jesus and John the Baptist, and it was Andrew who actually brought his brother Peter to Jesus before this. So Jesus isn't just having a leisurely stroll on the beach and see, see a couple of fishermen and say, you know what, those guys might make good fishers of men. No, this, this wasn't the first encounter. He knew these guys. These men knew Jesus. The first one we, we see mentioned here was Simon Peter. Peter, of course, became the natural leader of the twelve. He's the one who wrote First and Second Peter, and history actually tells us, by the way, that Peter 
because he believed he was unworthy to die as Jesus Christ did, told them, please turn me upside down and nail me on the cross upside down. History tells us he died upside down on the cross through the means of crucifixion. Was he perfect? No, of course not. <laughs> and so, uh, we, we often jokingly say that Peter had a mouth that was a shape of a shoe or a sandal. He was often inserting his foot into his mouth. He was not perfect. And of course he denied Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Jesus Christ uses imperfect people like the Simon Peters and us to accomplish his purposes. The next one was Simon Peter's brother Andrew. And he's the one who I remind you was the one who actually brought Simon Peter, his brother, to Jesus. And we often see, and we don't know a whole lot about Andrew, but the one thing we do know about Andrew is he was constantly bringing people to Christ. Isn't that a good thing? You've got to love a guy who does that, okay? He may not have been the greatest preacher in the world. He may not have been the most intelligent. He obviously wasn't you know, a, a born natural leader like Peter. But nevertheless, he did the, the right thing in bringing people to Christ. Jesus walked along farther and he sees two brothers. The first one was James. James ended up becoming the pastor of the church of Jerusalem and became the first apostle to be martyred. John was his brother. He was a part of that inner circle. He was the one John describes himself in, in uh, the fourth gospel, which of course he wrote. He described himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He was a part of that, that inner circle of that three. Of course, God used him to write the fourth gospel of John, as well as first, second, and third John, and the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. As we think about these men, it's interesting that Jesus would choose these men. Why not somebody else? (laughs) Was it risky to choose these men? Well, here's what one author wrote about these men. This is an interesting quote. I quote, These few men whose backgrounds were were in mundane trades and earthly occupations had little more than 18 months training for the monumental task to which they were called. There was no second string, no backup players, no plan B if the twelve should fail. The strategy sounds risky in the extreme. In earthly terms, the founding of the church and the spread of the gospel message depended entirely on those twelve ordinary men with their many obvious weaknesses. And the entirety of their training for the task took less than half as long as it typically takes to get a degree from a seminary today. But Christ knew what he was doing. From his divine perspective, the ultimate success of the strategy actually depended on the Holy Spirit working in those men to accomplish his sovereign will. It was a mission that, it was a mission that could not be thwarted. That's why it was a work for which God alone deserves praise and glory. End quote. I love that quote. It reminds us that God reigns supreme over His creation, that He is sovereignly in control of whom He chooses and what He is doing. I'll tell you what, humanly speaking, though, uh, it, it looked like a disaster waiting to happen, though, didn't it? <laughs> 
humanly speaking, it could have all fallen apart. And many would have said that Jesus wasted his life, but of course he did not. Number five, Jesus' early ministry had the right call. The fifth feature of Jesus' early ministries, we see he had the right call. What's the call? Jesus told these men to follow me. Follow me was the call. The words follow me are very important here. Why? Why are they important? They're important because they teach important truths about what it actually means to be one of Christ's disciples. You say, well, what does it mean to be one of Christ's disciples? I'm glad you asked that question. Let me give you five points as we think about this. Number one, obedience. To be a follower of Christ means we must obey the one whom we follow. That's an unpopular concept today, isn't it? Obedience is very unpopular today. Children don't want to obey their parents or their teachers or the policemen or the government. And we don't want to obey anyone either. It just goes against who we think we are. We don't want to be subservient. We want to do our own thing. And when we see a phrase like, follow me, we tend to interpret that, well, that's, you know, that's just a suggestion. That's an invitation. Jesus is inviting us here. We don't actually have to do this. That's how many people interpret it. However, the words follow me, I will tell you, are a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's you must do this. You must follow Jesus. Which is why you see these guys responding as they do. Their response is interesting, is it not? They obeyed Jesus' command to follow him. They left what they were doing. And the idea, by the way, was it was a permanent leave. They were not going to go back to this earthly occupation of fishing. They were going to follow Jesus. Jesus was giving them essentially a new occupation. They left their nets, their boats, whatever else, to follow Jesus. So obedience is certainly the first part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Number two, repentance. When Jesus called Matthew, who of course wrote the book of Matthew, he called somebody who knew he was a sinner. Jesus was, or sorry, Matthew was a tax collector. <laughs> and, and in his culture, he was a traitor. He was, he was one of the worst people who lived, as far as they were concerned. A tax collector was working for the Roman government, ripping off his own people. Matthew knew he was a sinner. And Jesus, when he comes along, uh, he, he didn't have to tell Matthew you know, you're a sinner, Matthew. He didn't have to tell him that. Matthew already knew that. Jesus was, by the way, always emphasizing repentance. The point is that it's impossible to follow Christ without repentance. We have to change our view in regards to our sin. It had to be this way. It had to be this. How could it be otherwise? After all, think about who Jesus is. He's God, right? God's holy. Jesus is holy. He's the sinless Son of God. Therefore, anybody who is to follow Jesus Christ, well, then they have to turn their back to sin to God. They have to set their face to righteousness. So we have obedience, we have repentance, and number three, we have submission. Submission. It means to be placed under the authority of another. Jesus is not saying, 
just follow, is he? No, Jesus said, follow me. That means you're going to submit to me, Jesus was saying. And how, again, how could it be otherwise if the one we're following is the King of kings and Lord of lords, then we have to be truly his disciples then. So there's obedience, there's repentance, there's submission, and number four, there's trust. These guys had to trust the one whom they were following. It's impossible to follow Christ without trusting him. You're not going to follow somebody you don't trust, are you? No, of course not. A lack of trust is going to cause us to deviate from the path. It's going to cause us to, to take a different path, to cause us to choose to leave Jesus Christ. If you don't trust Jesus Christ, you're not going to follow him. And number five, the last one is perseverance. Perseverance, endurance is the idea here. Why? Because following is not some isolated act. These guys didn't just follow Jesus down the beach and say, wow, wasn't that fun? Now I'm going to go back to fishing. No. <laughs> they persevered. Times were going to get tough. It wasn't an isolated act. It wasn't something that was just done once. It wasn't something that was never going to repeated, be, be repeated again. Rather, we're talking about something here that is a lifetime commitment. If you follow Christ, Jesus says, Keep your hand on the plow and don't look back. Take up your cross and follow me. It's a lifetime commitment. And you're going to keep, you need to keep going in that commitment until the race is done. So what, is it, what does it mean to follow Christ? Five points. Obedience, repentance, submission, trust, and perseverance. Don't give up. There is a sixth feature of Jesus' early ministry. We see he had the right methods. He had the right methods. Matthew's going to focus on Jesus' words and works here. So that's what I want to do. That's what Matthew's focusing on. That's the intent of the text. So let's, let's see. There's, there's three things that, that I want to point out to you here in the text. Okay, Number one, we see Jesus' method was teaching. His first method first method was teaching. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. These words are in the scriptures for a reason, okay? Verse 23 says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching, where? In their synagogues. In the Jews' synagogues. Here the Bible uses the word went. Interesting word, the word went. It's in the imperfect tense. And when something's in the imperfect tense, it's just indicated something that's repeated. It's a continuous action. The idea is that Jesus was continually going about these various synagogues in the region of Galilee and teaching. This verse is summarizing Jesus' entire Galilean ministry for us. So if you want to know what Jesus predominantly did during this time period, this is what he did. He went about going to the various synagogues in Galilee and teaching. And by the way, the next several chapters in Matthew show us uh, this, I, this truth of what Jesus did. In fact, in Matthew 5-9, through 9, we see Jesus going through Galilee teaching. Matt, what, what's, what's Matthew 5-7 through 7 all about? It's the Sermon on the Mount, right? 
we see Jesus teaching and preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then in Matthews uh, uh, 8 through 9, it's his works. So 5 through 7 is about his teaching ministry, and then eight and, Matthew 8 and 9 is all about the works. What's his, what, is his te- what is teaching, I should say? What is teaching? Well, teaching, by the way, not the same as preaching. Teaching is the passing on of information. Literally is what it means. Just passing on of information. It focused on content with the purpose of discovering the truth. Typically, you would think of teaching to people who, who already know the truth. Often people in the synagogues would come to hear the truth, to hear the scriptures. They often already knew it. And Jesus would go in and would be, giving op- would be given an opportunity to read scripture and to uh, exposit the scriptures. By the way, there was one time in scripture that didn't make him very popular. If I remember correctly, he was reading the scroll, the Isaiah scroll. He quotes from the Isaiah scroll. And then he said, I am the one whom I've just read about. And they wanted to kill him for saying that. (laughs) That was kind of typical back then. People would read from the scrolls, and then they would exposit the scriptures, expound upon them in their teaching time. So this is what Jesus was doing. The idea is here, the synagogue teaching was basically expository teaching. In other words, the scripture was read and then it would be explained going from section to section from to the other section. That's what Jesus did. So his first method was teaching. His second method was preaching. Not the same thing. Look again at verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That was his second method. What did Jesus do? He preached. Proclaiming means to preach. The idea is to herald, to cry out. And what did Jesus preach? The Bible says the gospel was his message. The the gospel means, by the way, good news. What is the good news? The gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is the good news that God's kingdom is open to anyone who puts their trust in Him. That's the good news. That's the message that Jesus preached. The third message, or the third method, was healing. We see Jesus teaching, we see Him preaching, and then the end of verse 23, it says, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Why did Jesus heal people? Why did he do this? Well, Jesus' healing was divine proof. His words, by the way, should have been sufficient for people to believe in, but sometimes people need to see other divine proof that the message was true. But yet we see Jesus' healing ministry was a powerful addition to the evidence of His teaching and preaching. By the way, the passage here mentions 
three representatives of various diseases and pains. Matthew's mentioning three specific types of uh, groups of people that Jesus healed. Uh, This is not an exhaustive list, but these are three different types of people, three types of uh, afflictions, if you will, and, and then I'll say something about them. But the first one was the demoniacs. Demoniacs, these are uh, people who are being afflicted by the demons. We see an example of that in the book of Job, don't we? Job uh, was afflicted with some, some, some skin rash, boils, or whatever. Of course, Satan had to get permission to do that to Job. But we see that, that Satan was allowed by God to go to Job to give him that physical affliction. That's an example of uh, demons afflicting people in the Bible. Demons might do that to you as well. Demons were certainly doing it at this time, and they can still do it today. The second group is the epileptics. Uh, I'm not a doctor, but as far as I know, epilepsy is a a disorder of your central nervous system, and as a result of that, uh, it can can cause uh, convulsions and seizures. Uh, Sorry, not seizures. Seizures. (laughs) Seizures. <laughs> Very similar to Caesars, though, isn't it? No, and of course not. But, so this is another type of a group here that, that is mentioned. And the, and the third one is the paralytics. A general term just representing a wide range of crippling handicaps. Now why did Matthew pick those three terms to use in his gospel here? This is not just a willy-nilly choosing of, of afflictions pains and diseases. There must be a reason, and many Bible scholars see a connection between the spiritual, the mental, and the physical here. Now here's the good news. If, If there is a connection between the spiritual, mental, and physical, this brings us good news, because guess what? Jesus doesn't change. God doesn't change. Jesus has the power to overcome any afflictions. We see Jesus overcoming the spiritual, the mental, and the physical afflictions, well, guess what? He can still overcome the spiritual, the mental, and the physical afflictions. So if your affliction is spiritual, my friend, then run to Jesus. If your affliction is mental, then run to Jesus. If your affliction is physical, then run to Jesus. But let me give you a warning. Here's the warning. Are you ready? God is not a vending machine. God is not a vending machine. Okay, You don't punch in A1 on the vending machine and put your $2 into the machine and get it necessarily. Okay, Just because you pray something doesn't mean you're going to get it. Okay, God doesn't always answer prayer with a yes. You understand there's three ways God can answer prayer. God can answer it with a yes, but sometimes His answer is no and sometimes it's wait. God's not a vending machine. And so God is not going to promise to heal everyone who asks Him. You say, give me a biblical example of that. Read Corinthians. The Apostle Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. And God said, no, Paul, you get to keep your thorn in the flesh. My grace will be sufficient. Okay? So just because you pray for something and... God doesn't answer with a yes doesn't mean God didn't answer your prayer. The answer may have been no, it might be wait. 
Okay, so don't assume that you just didn't have enough faith. God doesn't always answer prayer with a yes. So the healing miracles Jesus performed while on this earth, they're temporarily authenticating signs to Israel that her Messiah had come. These were signs to Israel that her Messiah had come. That's why Jesus was doing this. All right, last of all, we see that Jesus' early ministry had the right results. Had the right results. May not be the results that you might want or somebody else might want. We don't see megachurches being started. We don't see radio ministries being started or whatever, okay? You know, you know, having a worldwide audience of billions. No, we don't see that happening here. But Jesus' early ministry had the right results, the, the, the exact results that God wanted. Look at verse 25. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And that's how the early ministry of Jesus ends here in chapter 4. And so what do we see here? As a result of Jesus teaching, preaching, healing, the good news about Him is spreading throughout the region and even beyond Galilee. The Bible even says it goes even to the east of the Jordan River. There was a region called Decapolis, which Deca means ten, the ten cities. These were spiritually dark regions, but the Bible says the light of Jesus Christ was spreading. The light had come. The Holy Spirit was drawing people from all of these diverse, dark regions to Jesus. Many people believed in Jesus. Many people were saved. They were experiencing the kingdom inwardly. By the way, the kingdom refers more to an inward rule than an outward rule here. It's the rule of God through the grace of salvation. Many people were experiencing that, but did they all? No, of course not. We don't believe in universalism. I hope you don't anyway. Universalism is this belief that everybody's going to get saved. Everybody's on their way to heaven. Everybody didn't become a Christian. No, not everybody followed Christ. In fact, the vast majority of the people at that time did not believe in Jesus Christ. Many of them listened to what Jesus said. They watched what He did. Many of them saw His miracles. And they didn't accept the one who preached to them. So, my non-Christian friend, listen closely. My non-Christian friend, I'm speaking to you. The world is equally dark today. The light of the Gospel has been unveiled by God's grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Men and women continue often to prefer darkness rather than the light, the Bible says, because their deeds are evil. We love our sin. But guess what? If you're one of these people, you love the darkness rather than the light because your deeds are evil, guess what? If you're one of them, now is the time to repent of your sin. Now is the time to take up Jesus' cross and to follow Him daily. You can repent of your sin. You can find forgiveness of your sin Run to Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. For you, my Christian friend, we have the life-transforming message of the gospel, the good news. Do you believe that? Do you really believe what you believe? We must see ourselves as fishers of men in whatever calling you are, okay? 
the chances are God's not going to come along and call you to be an apostle, all right? Don't expect that to happen, all right? God picked his apostles. That time's done. However, you will find fulfillment as you follow Jesus in whatever calling God has given to you. Whether that's working at the hospital, owning your own business, being a doctor, being retired, being a child, okay? You know, being, going to school, WinTech, university, whatever, whatever God calls you to do, that's your calling. Okay, God calls you to be a light, to be an influence in whatever your calling is. And that can be very fulfilling as you advance the kingdom of heaven. Are you being an influence, though? In your calling. Are you being an influence? Because that's, that's coming in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, you are the light, you are salt, that means you're an influence. Jesus described his disciples as light and light bearers in Matthew 5. Look what he says in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they'll see your good works and boast about how good of a person you are. And some of you ought to be shaking your heads saying, heretic. (laughs) That's not what the Bible says. Our good works aren't to point to us. Your good works are to point to your heavenly Father in heaven, right? That's what it said. Jesus said, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not so you can get a pat on the back and say, good boy. Thank you for doing that. It makes me feel better. No. It's to point to your heavenly Father in heaven to bring Him glory and honor. So, as you have heard, what is our task? Our task, if you're a believer, is to pass on the divine light that we've received. You're not the light, by the way. Jesus is the light of the world. You're to reflect the light of the world to a world that is dark. Why? Because the world's dark. It needs the light. And without the light, who is Jesus, it's going to die eternally. Eternal death. So may God help us to be light reflectors, light bearers. Let's pray.